Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. Father, we come together and with these songs that we're singing, they just, they, they paint a picture in our hearts, in our minds. They touch our souls in a special way. They lift up the name of Jesus. They help the fears and the anxieties of this life begin to fade into the background. Lord, we get a picture of our Savior who gave all for us. And it brings a settled peace and a joy to our hearts in tumultuous times. Lord, we hear of many in our congregation, many who are hurting, who have been struggling, job situations, health, family distress, marriages that are struggling. And Father, we lift up each and every person here in our congregation, Lord, that we know needs your loving hand, a touch from the Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would cause your people to rise up, to do the work of the kingdom here and now, to love people with a reckless abandon, to sacrifice greatly, stir up our hearts that we, Lord, might be bridge builders that we might be encouragers and supporters, that we might give of our resources, time, emotional energy, money, that we might give of our resources, give of our wisdom, our insight from you, that we might lend our strength to those who are weak here in our midst and even beyond in our communities, Lord. May the power of your spirit so flow in us. May our calm and may our peace and may our settled conviction in our King press us into a world that needs to hear from you, needs to see you as you truly are. We're asking, Lord, that you would make your people peacemakers our country needs. You would cause our hearts to rest in another kingdom. As we turn our attention to your word, I'm asking that you would give us insight into it, that you would cause our hearts to resonate with your truth, that we would experience the convicting power that comes from your word, that we would 
allow ourselves to see our own sin and our rebellion and our hard-heartedness. And Lord, that we would turn from it and embrace your love and your forgiveness. And we want that, Lord, not just today, but every day of our lives as we are continually transformed into the image of Jesus. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to set our hearts and our minds on you and you alone. And we ask that you would do that even here and now as we turn to a reading in the study of your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of Revelations 1. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone that looked like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. 
I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Welcome to our new teaching series where we're going to go head on toward our contentious political climate, and the book of Revelation. So exciting. I mean, a series on politics, that sounds, well, like serious trouble uh, brewing. And um, a teaching series on Revelation, which always proves to be particularly difficult. So we should expect some especially troubling, difficult times. And so this is going to be really fun. Um, and so I figured just to get underway here, we should, I should stir the, the, the pot with just some politics, because why not? We're here. And um, the book of Revelation has been described as like, uh, like an ancient political cartoon, which I, I find to be a, a pretty compelling uh, thing to, 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 to link it to. And so um, what I want to do is just look at some political cartoons to get us primed for the message. And so um, I should apologize in advance, uh, but uh, you could send you know, any of your complaints and frustrations uh, to me at email. You can just email them to me during the service or after. You can just send them to T-R-E-V-O-R at beacon.church. And so uh, here's a great one. No place like home. And so, of course, we know the references to Wizard of Oz, but you would have to know the Wizard of Oz story in order to make sense of what's really going on here. And so you see the red slippers, and you're like, well, are the red slippers? Well, of course we know, if you know the Wizard of Oz, what the red slippers, and she's clicking, and she wants to go home. But of course, does she really want to go home? Because you could tell from the rest of it and from the calendar behind her, this was done March, April, May. She's about done being home because, well, she's been in lockdown. And so she doesn't really want to be home anymore. And you see the pile of toilet paper. And so imagine a thousand years from now, an archaeologist finding this in the, you know, the rubbles of, you know, the rubble of an archive of some library somewhere and trying to figure out what this meant. You'd have to know a whole lot of things about the things behind this. You'd have to know when it was written and what was the intention of it and all this kind of stuff to really understand it. Um, Here's another one. This is a fun one uh, for those of you who are tracking some of the things. So, you know, this is Google and then Facebook and then, you know, you got the little stacking Russian dolls and Twitter and then YouTube. And there's little Putin down, down there. And so you might look at this and go, oh, they must mean that Putin is very, very small. No, of course, that's not what it means. What it means is that he's actually using his secret influence through social media to do negative things in the, unless, of course, you're in Russia and you see this and you're thinking this is good news uh, and so your vantage point actually will change how you interpret something like this and of course I assume if you're Google Facebook Twitter or YouTube you might not be thrilled with this uh, comic either with this political cartoon now we'll, we'll get into some this looks right out of the revelation this to me looks like a grotesque beast 
that has things growing out from all parts where they shouldn't be growing out. And of course, we know what this is, right? We know the symbolism, right? What, what is this? Come on, someone just tell me. What, it's the blame game, right? And now, you, I would say you'd have to know when this was written to understand it, but of course, you don't have to know when it was written because it always applies. As long as there has been an elephant and a donkey, they have, they have uh, been pointing fingers and blame at the other. This one is going to get me some emails, but this is fun. Folks, the current president is clearly an embarrassment because, of course, he can't spell dictators. <laughs> and you'd have to be able to figure out who these people are by, you know, the imagery. Um, and I just let you figure that out. And anyway, here, this is, a, you're going to, all right. So, for woke flakes who are unable to deal with opposing opinions you can now be easily offended. <laughs> which right now, some of you are already angry, which is sort of the point of the cartoon, which is really funny to me. But you would have to sort of know, what is that? What is the easily, is it a big red button? There was an old song, right? What's that big red button do? That was like, like crazy ways to die or something. My kids used to sing this song. It was like a commercial or something. Anyway, is that the red button here? No. What's this red button? It's the Staples button. So you would have to know an American firm, you'd have to know their easy button campaign. That was easy. And, and then you'd have to understand what's going on, which means it, it falls in a very narrow window for the audience to really be able to understand. And you'd have to make some big jumps. You'd have to know what woke was about. You'd have to know what snowflakes is about. You'd have to, to see the new term woke flakes, which I, I think should make the dictionaries. Um, and, and who knows, it might actually actually do that. Then we have this one from the alt-right Empire Strikes Back. Look at how many images are laid one on top of another. You gotta recognize Vader, but you also know, of course, who Vader is. You have to know who Yoda is, even though he's not in the scene, which is sort of interesting, but because they made Jabba green, that's his Yoda. And you'd have to, of course, know who Bannon is and why all these other things, and of course, there's the Statue of Liberty chained up like who? Princess Leia, of course, but she has more clothes on. Lady Liberty does, um, which is nice. Very respectful of Lady Liberty. Um, so anyway, this, you know, this is the power of images and political cartoons. And of course, this is just a great up, straightforward representation of what we're experiencing right now. And what I love about this particular image not, isn't just that they're brawling and fighting and they look so angry. But I love the fact that one of them has the, the, the field of stars and one has the red and white stripes. Right? Like, it's saying something here. So here, here are two groups of people who are supposed to be fighting for the same thing. Together they represent this one nation. And yet that's how they go about their love for country. Powerful images. But you need to know when they were drawn. You need to know what the history was around it. You need to know a whole lot of other images, stories, books, references, in order to get the most out of political cartoons. I, I, there's always like, a, there's like classes you can actually take, like online classes and others for analyzing political cartoons, which is always sort of funny to me because I'm like, the way to analyze a political cartoon is to live in the culture in which it's being drawn. 
because it only makes sense. If you are familiar with what's going on, then of course the cartoons will make sense. And that's what the Revelation did. The book of Revelation isn't a crystal ball for the future. That's not what it's about. It isn't designed to try to tell us what's going to happen in the future. It does that, but it actually doesn't give us any new information that we don't have from other parts of the Bible. That's why I'm saying it's not like a crystal ball. But the images that are chosen are designed to wake us up in a new way. We're teaching the old truths in a new and a powerful way. That's what the revelation is going to do for us. Now, I think it is a timely book for our day and age. Most of us have never experienced such a volatile and divisive political climate. There is just arguing and contention all around. According to the Pew Research Center, our political identification is now a bigger wedge between Americans. So how you identify with politically, conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, it is now a bigger wedge between Americans than education level, gender, race, or religion. You will have more in common with a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu who is of a different gender than you if you are both conservative or both liberal than you will with a Christian who is on the other side of the aisle. Something has gone crazy when we're discussing issues like national security, immigration, or the government's role in helping the disadvantaged. We disagree now more than ever before, even among the Christian community. I've been watching some of the, the different clips and things and news articles, and I saw an elderly couple leaving the Republican National Convention. And I saw a group of protesters standing there screaming at this group of people who had just gone to the President of the United States Convention. They were leaving the convention in the street. People are yelling at them, screaming. One younger, uh, large man was, was in the face of an elderly couple, cursing at them, fingers in the face, yelling, screaming. I was like, any one of us would have been threatened in that situation. And here is an elderly couple. Then go a couple minutes more, and you're going to find a large group of men wearing red, white, and blue, screaming at women to get out of their town and get off their streets, pushing them away with metal bars. <laughs> we lost our minds. Something has broken. The teenager sitting in a restaurant, he has his MAGA hat ripped off his head and a drink is thrown in his face. A teenager. A mother in New England has to call in a professional mediator because her daughters are no longer talking because one supports Trump and one does not. Professional mediation because the family can no longer be a family. There is a growing sense among many. They say 60% of Republicans and 65% of Democrats interviewed by Pew in a different survey. They said 
that if people feel differently from you about your political beliefs, they are now suspect their character. It's not just now a matter of we think different ways and different policies and different politics. There is actually a character attack. The church is not exempt from this, not even Beacon. We've gone like 15 years since the church started, and we have been largely free of any significant controversies. And I did not see this one coming. I should have. I, we were a politically diverse church in so many ways. We're diverse in every way. And yet I underestimated the degree to which people will hold to their political beliefs and be willing to say and do things against their brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, it's, you know, we're experiencing a small taste of it compared to what many churches across the whole of the country are experiencing. It's been incredible and in some ways saddening. So that's what this series is going to be going after. It's designed to show us who Jesus is right now. It's designed to show us what Jesus is going to accomplish, what he has promised us. This series is going to help us worship at one and only one altar, at the feet of Jesus. That's our hope. So, revelations and politics all mixed up in one. We're going to end the series the week after the election, so that'll be fun. All right, by way of introductions to the Revelation, it is apocalyptic literature. It is a letter, just like the rest of the New Testament letters, but it is more than that. The genre itself uses pictures and metaphors and symbols and animals and numbers and mythological creatures to paint pictures in the minds of the faithful that we will not be able to forget. That's sort of the point of these incredible pictures, is that we'll see things from a, a different perspective. However, even more importantly, the Revelation actually wants us to place our reality inside a greater reality. And this is really important. It wants us to live today in our reality differently because of a greater reality. So imagine it just for a moment that your reality is like this. That's all that you see, hear, can taste, understand. And the revelation is trying to break that veil and trying to show that there's actually a reality that looks like this. And the way you live and act, the way you behave, the way you dream, the, th the hopes and dreams, all of those in your reality should shift because of this reality. That's what the revelation is attempting to do if we will let it. It's written between 92 and 96 AD by John the Apostle. Persecution had broken out against the fledgling church in earnest around 65 AD under Emperor Nero. Um, and that's largely when he started feeding us to the lions. Then things intensified in 67 AD under Emperor Vespasian. Jerusalem, the holy city, destroyed in 70 AD. No doubt a cataclysmic blow to the Jewish people and the fledgling church. The apostles Peter and Paul, they had been crucified. Timothy, who was a next-gen church leader, kind of the future of the church, 
Uh, he had been beaten to death, and then 92 AD rolls around. Emperor Domitian, he called himself the Eternal King, and he rebranded the Roman Empire the Eternal Empire. Because of his insecurities, he grasped after deifying himself and the empire so that he could bring unity to this expansive empire. And so all it would take was a little bit of worship to show your allegiance. And so a pinch of incense on the altar, a simple prayer, Caesar Curios, which is just your declaration that Caesar is Lord. And you could prove your loyalty to the empire. Of course, true Christians like John would rather die than worship someone other than Jesus. And so he was exiled to a rocky little prison colony off the coast of Turkey, Patmos. That's where the book was written. And that's where the Romans maintained this sort of prison rock quarry, which doesn't sound particularly fun place to be. In fact, it was horrific. And that's where John found himself. So Jesus comes in and he tries, he meets John there in the island of Patmos and he pierces the dark shroud of mystery that separates our reality from a greater reality. Just a little bit. He just, just enough to give John a glimpse of something that he and we desperately need. He allows him to see who Jesus is today. He breaks through in order to encourage and warn the early church and by extension to encourage and to warn us as well. And this book, of course, ends the whole Bible story, 1,500 years in the making, covering all of this grand history for Adam and Eve all the way to the end of time. And it ends with the book of Revelations. And sometimes that's lost on me, that this is actually the ending story. All right, imagine how unsatisfying that most books or movies would be if you couldn't get to the ending. Right, like we were in a movie, I forget, it was one of the Marvel movies or something, and they had a projector problem at like 75% into the, into the way of the movie. We're like, ah, oh, the whole crowd just groaned. We had to leave and come back another day, and the whole thing, we're like, we're not going to actually get to see the ending. Because you need to get to the ending if you really want to understand and appreciate what the author was trying to do. I mean, how much of a play would you miss if you didn't get to see the ending? Right? I mean, some, by the way, for the younger people here, when I was younger, much younger, we used to go to places and watch plays together. This was way, way, way back before global pandemics, and there was a place called Broadway, and they had these amazing plays with, like, incredible endings, and they, like, they would stir your heart. But you can imagine walking out at, like, 90%. What a heartbreak. And when, when most of us look at the book of the Revelation here, we look at chapters 2 and 3. We look at the seven churches, and maybe we spend some time in the last chapter, and that's it. The rest of it we sort of skip over. But this is, this is the ending. This is the resolution. It's the grand finale. This is the passionate climax that, it, that we've been building to from the very beginning. So Jesus comes in. Revelation 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. 
I love this idea because, of course, Jesus comes in. He's piercing this shroud of darkness so that we can see another reality. And he calls it the revelation. This is the, the word that we use for apocalypse, which is sort of unfortunate because when we talk about the apocalypse, usually it's a bad thing happening. And so when you, you know, I think this sort of bleeds into our understanding of this book. We hear the apocalypse. This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And we're like, ah, that means that the world's, it's going to blow up and bad things and fires burning and, you know, hurricanes in the Atlantic, five of them and all that. We, we look at that and we all go, yeah, that's what's happening right now. But, but the word itself actually means the unveiling. So this book wasn't meant to caused us to, to think that about the destruction. It was, caused, it was designed to open up to us, to unveil Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. It's the, it's the, the unveiling of who he really is. And if you keep that in your mind throughout the whole of this book, you're going to see him in every chapter. You're going to hear more about his story. And it will change the way you think. The apocalypse is an unfortunate sort of way of understanding it. But it is important to know that this is an unveiling. It's a revealing of the other reality. And if there is one thing I really hope that you get out of this entire series and in, and, and this message, it's that things are not as they seem. We cannot live in light of this reality alone. As followers of Christ, we're not supposed to do that. There is a greater reality. Listen, you can't see the COVID virus, but you know it's real. You can't even, but you can see some of its effects, right? Even when there are clouds in the skies and you cannot see the sun, that reality is still there. This, this is great truth in all of the world. And Jesus is coming on the scene and he's saying, listen, things are not as they seem. The way that you're reacting and the emotions that you're feeling and the fears that you are entertaining, they're based on this reality, not that reality. And that's a problem for followers of Christ. This book wants to open us up to this reality that there is more here than our eyes can see and our ears can hear, more than our emotions can experience or that our minds can understand. And it has to be unveiled for us. And what, what is this unveiling? What do we see when Jesus begins piercing this shroud? We actually see him in our Midst. Verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I love the fact he's, he's got all this suffering going on. He identifies with the suffering. He's in this horrible place. The church globally right now is struggling under the weight of persecution. And he is, he is identifying with that. He's calling for patient endurance. I mean, this is a message for the church today for sure. But on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. He was worshiping in the midst of all of that. And in verse 11, he says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Talks about these seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was the Son of Man. The seven churches, you pick up, you understand it from verse 19 and 20, where he says, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's the thing. 
there really were seven churches there. No doubt all of those churches existed, but there weren't only seven churches. So he could have said five churches, he could have said seven, he could have said 15 churches. But he chose seven because of the nature of apocalyptic literature. The seven is the number of completion in the scriptures. And so the symbolism here is he's saying, listen, this is for those seven churches, and it really is a letter that's going to circulate, but it goes far beyond that. This is a letter to the whole, full, complete church. The whole of it, the universal church throughout time and history and in every place, the message of Revelation is for them. And then what does he tell us in thir verse 13? That he was among the lampstands. And since we know what the lampstands are, we know that what he's saying is that Jesus is actually in our midst. He's not looking down from heaven. He's not leading the charge out front where we could barely see him. He's not pulling up the rear. It says he's in our midst. And so you have this picture of the churches all around him and Jesus is dwelling in their midst. He's walking among them. He's, he's doing what Jesus does. Even though we don't necessarily see him, Jesus is in fact in our midst. And this matters because he's about to describe this character that, he, that we call the Son of Man. Verses 13, we kind of get these images. These images, if you're taking notes, are from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The robe, the sash, the girdle, these are priestly garments. And so what he's trying to remind us of is that Jesus, who he is today, is the high priest that you read about in Hebrews and elsewhere. And the priest, of course, the, the Latin word is pontifex. It's the idea that, that we're a bridge builder. And so he, as priest, is the bridge builder between God, the Father, and the rest of humanity. He's the bridge builder. And that's the role that Jesus still has today. He is the high priest standing in the gap. That's who he is in our midst right now. He talks about this wool and the blazing fire and things like this. And so when he t references the, the fire of his eyes, this is the imagery used to talk about this penetrating gaze and the purifying power of fire. And so Jesus sees your heart attitude right now. He's in your midst. He's in our midst. And he sees your heart attitude. He sees what you're really putting your trust in. And the fire in his eyes is trying to purge those things to purify us if we will allow him to. And of course, all of this points to what Daniel, who Daniel refers to as the ancient of days, the ageless one. I, I love this image because the ancient of days has forever been and will forever be. And so he has seen the rise and the fall of many empires, ideologies that have come and changed the world and then kind of fizzled out centuries later. The ancient of days has seen it all. The systems of the world that have dominated for centuries and seemed like they would never fail. The ancient of days watched them come crashing down. He sees them all. It's a different vantage point and he reminds us of that eternal nature. He talks about the bronze feet, and this is another reference to the great statue in Daniel. All the world empires rest on these feet of clay and iron. They cannot bear the weight of world leadership. Never has an empire in the world been able to bear the weight of global leadership. And I hate to break it to you, never will a nation rise up and be able to bear the weight of the global leadership. Never. It will never happen. It never has and it never will. 
That's why he has the bronze feet. Because he's the only one with feet strong enough to hold up world leadership, to hold all of it on his shoulders. Only Jesus will be able to do that. And if we're looking for our salvation in the kingdoms of this world, we will be sorely disappointed because they are iron mixed with clay quickly crumbling. You know, most of our art and our mental images, they put Jesus on like a hillside or in a town, maybe talking to the kids and healing people and stuff like that. And, and those are powerful images. At his most aggressive, he's debating with the Pharisees or he's clearing the temple. This is something altogether different. This is who Jesus is today. Today. The almighty, the ever-present, the all-knowing. And what does this almighty, all-seeing, all-wise king of, and God want us to know? While in our midst, he assures us that he has conquered our true enemies. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus has actually conquered all of our true enemies. And he placed his hand, the hands that held the seven stars, that holds the universe, that holds the world's power, gently touches you on your shoulder and says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why? Because he's already conquered your true enemy. He's already conquered death and Hades. This is the true reason why we ought to fear and dismay and experience hopelessness and meaninglessness because death is always threatening to snuff us out and destroy our legacy. And Jesus says, I've already beaten it. Listen, if you're thinking through what's going on in this passage, you're going to start to see that Jesus knows all of your fear and all of your pain and all of your struggle and all of your anger and all of your sin and your lack of trust and your spiritual complacency because he is in the midst. You harbor secret sins, Jesus knows. You struggle with gossip or in tearing people down, Jesus knows. The loneliness that is debilitating, Jesus sees it all. You're angry about the current state of the country. You doubt that God is still in control. You thrash about on social media. Jesus is right there with you. You have fears that the country that you love is unraveling. Jesus is in the midst and he is, he is calling to you to open up your eyes and to see the reality beyond this reality. You're scared that the covid is going to come for you and for those you love. And Jesus is here in the midst, and he's saying, open up your eyes and see that this is not your forever life. We need not fear or worry or be anxious because fear makes us do all sorts of stupid things. And we fear just many things that are simply unworthy of our fear. So many things unworthy of our fear. You know, I'm getting all of these texts or emails, people that are worried, conversations, they're worried about COVID, worried about finances, worried about, you know, liberals who are going to take over, worried that conservatives are going to get another four years and finally ruin 
the country? I mean, think about it. What if your guy doesn't win? What if Trump doesn't win the presidency? What if Kamala wins instead? That was a joke. Sorry. The morning after the election, it should be a tiny blip for citizens of a heavenly kingdom. In the scope of world history, it's a blip. And yet it's not how we see it. Nero is nothing. Domitian is nothing. Some of you may not have even heard of Vespasian or Domitian before this morning. Did you even know that they persecuted the church for many, many years? All the names of today's politicians will be forgotten. It will be Trump who? Biden who? COVID what? In a thousand years, they are going to be footnotes in dusty world histories. That's it. And some of you might be saying here, listen, I don't fear. You're talking about fear. I don't fear. I'm angry. I just want to encourage you to check that out. Examine whether or not that's the case, because from my experience and the research of many doctors, much of anger really is a mask for fear. It's fear of loss, fear of control, fear of the other. And anger can be used to mask our guilt after we do something boneheaded. We can let our anger flare. And then you don't have to deal with the mistakes that you've made. We've all experienced it. We've all seen this. We've all done this. Anger is a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion. So underlying your anger, you're going to find all sorts of things if you're willing to press past it and really look. And fear is going to be a big part. You're going to see core hurts that are stemming from feelings of being disregarded or unimportant or accused or unworthy or devalued. All of these things are churning up. If you've been rejected or feel powerless or unlovable, and these feelings are, they, they produce this great pain and fear. And so what we do is we throw this, this great big heavy blanket of anger on top of them. But those feelings aren't gone. They're just smothered for a time. Listen, Jesus, he's got this. He's got this. There is an even more real world out there. And Jesus is using this book. He's using the revelation to undermine your confidence in what your eyes see in this reality. He's undermining your confidence in what you think is the real world. Because things are not as they seem. Jesus, he stepped through the shroud of death and he ransacked hell and Hades so that we would never have to fear again. The whole of the book is summarized in Revelation 1, starting in verse 4 to 8. I encourage you to be reading it and rereading it and rereading it through the course of this whole series. And in there he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He is our almighty. May our hearts be drawn to him and surrender our fear, our anger, our distrust to the Almighty who reaches down and touches you on the shoulder and says, do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, as we kick off this series with some background and some introductions to this book, Lord, we are just beginning to scratch the surface 
of what this, these powerful lessons teach us about who we are in this life. Father, what we need is to see with more clarity the realities, the, the, the picture that you are painting for us of this greater life. Father, teach us, please, Lord. Teach us through these images. Teach us through your word, through the power of the Spirit. Teach us, Lord, so that we might know and love and trust in you and you alone. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.